All right, we are in uh, Romans 11. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to Romans 11 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 947. Page 947. All right, so over the, uh, the last hmm, 10 years, I've spent quite a bit of time on the sides of mountains. I've shared some of those journeys with you and, and have pulled numerous illustrations, as a good pastor would, from my adventures uh, in the mountains. I have fallen in love specifically with climbing 14ers or 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado and specifically the Valley of Yosemite, where I get to, uh, last summer I got to finally uh, get to the top of Half Dome, which was incredible. And um, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time learning about the mountains. Here's the thing, mountains are, mountains are fun, right? Climbing a mountain is fun. It is rewarding. Uh, to be able to push yourself, to do something hard, it is a little bit scary at times. Uh, it is pushing you to kind of at times the edge of what you think you can do and you still have to push harder and do more. Uh, and that's rewarding. It is fun. It is exciting. Um, it takes a lot of work to prepare for it, right? Physically, you have to be physically prepared uh, to, to ascend a mountain, uh, especially if you're at altitude. And uh, that's part of the reason I started running in 2020. Um, but you also have to prepare yourself for the, um, the possibilities on the side of a mountain, because anything can happen. And so I have learned over the years uh, that, you know, you got you to gotta carry extra things in your pack that you hope you'll never have to need. Uh, warming blankets, um, uh, matches, uh, extra food, uh, anything that, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes I'll be going up the mountain and I'll see dudes like in flip-flops. Like, you know, they heard that it was an easy 14er and they're like, oh yeah, we'll just knock this one out, you know, and la, 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 going up in a 14 They haven't even, even looked at maps. They don't understand anything of what they're getting into. This happens a lot in Yosemite because in Yosemite you can drive into the valley and it, it looks like this beautiful place and the beauty lures you in and you have no idea how ridiculously dangerous it is. And, um, and people every year find themselves in trouble. Um, there is, whether it's on the side of a 14er or climbing around in Yosemite on the side of granite um, outcroppings, you can, you can find yourself very quickly cliffed out. When you're cliffed out, what that means is that you got off trail. You didn't even know you were getting off trail. You just got off trail, or maybe you were arrogant enough to think you didn't need a trail. And, uh, and so you just start stumbling along, and pretty soon you're like, okay, this is a little, I'll wake my way through this. And pretty soon you find yourself in a spot where you can't go back, but you can't go forward. Like, there's no place for you to go. Um, you know, you find yourself on a precipice. You find yourself near a drop. And, um, and then you look back, and you're like, I can't, I can't navigate that back up. I can't navigate that, that, that way. And uh, the only thing you can do when you're cliffed out is camp. <laughs> you find yourself the most secure spot you possibly can, and you sit, and you wait for someone to come and rescue you, and hopefully you have the supplies necessary uh, if you have to spend the, the night on the side of a mountain um, or, or whatever until someone gets to you. See, you get into that situation when you're arrogant. You get into a situation like that when, when it's, it's not just confidence, right? There's nothing wrong with well-earned confidence. It's arrogance. Arrogance comes in when, when you think that, that you just got to figure it out, you know the way, you don't need to ask questions, you know everything you need to know, and because you know everything you need to know, you stop asking questions, you stop learning, and you end up in a spot where um, you're in trouble. And uh, <laughs> here's the thing, we do this all the time, right? Now, thankfully, most of us aren't on the side of a mountain when we do it. Uh, but what's dangerous on a mountain is even more dangerous in the church. Um, when we start getting a little full of ourselves, when we're really, really confident about where we are and, and where we need to go and how we need to get there, we're really self-satisfied with the progress we've made so far and with our ability to evaluate ourselves and, and others, we take, start taking a little bit of pride in our progress our success, our knowledge, our maturity. 
we're already off the path. And we're in danger of hurting ourselves and hurting others. And um, as soon as we feel like it's safe to feel proud of ourselves and superior toward others, we're no longer safe to ourselves or to them. And so let's take a look at Romans 11, because that's kind of the main idea we're going to be digging into. Now, as you guys know, we, we take a book and we work our way through it. And so we're finishing up Romans 11. Next week, we'll be going into a topical series about um, joy and strength. Um, but this morning, we are going to be finishing up the book of, or excuse me, the chapter of Romans 11. So we've got quite a bit to cover this morning. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 11, and we're going to go through verse 36. And then we're going to work our way through it. All right, so starting in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trans trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now remember, he's talking about the Jewish nation, which has, um, by and large in Paul's time, rejected their Messiah, their Christ. Um, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So now if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, do not, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, a partial hardening, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we've got a lot to cover here. Thank you. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Let me just kind of... Um, bring you into where we are in the argument, right? Um, I want to, I'm going to do a, a, an overview of what we just, what, what we just read. So you have a sense of what this is about. So as you're studying it and reading it for yourself, you can navigate the theological complexity and, 
and kind of get a feel for where it's going. But then I want to focus specifically on the big idea that I think Paul is really driving into. As we have seen in chapters 9 and 10 and the the first part of 11, over the last couple of months, Paul is dealing with the tricky question of of Israel, right? In in the New Testament church, when, when Jesus came, Israel, God's chosen people, by and large, did not choose to believe in and follow Jesus, their Messiah. Um, and as, uh, as a result, um, there are some, some theological questions. Now, in his audience, Paul has both Jewish and Gentile believers, right? In the church in Rome, uh, it, it was a predominantly Gentile believer. The, Rome, uh, the, the, the Jewish population had been expelled from Rome um, for a period of time. They had just been allowed to return to Rome um, under Nero. And during that time, the church had exploded with non-Jewish believers, with Gentiles, and so it's predominantly Gentile, but with a significant Jewish population, the ones who actually began the church in Rome. And, and, and so Paul is speaking to both the Jewish and the Gentile believers in Rome, and he's, he's having them look back at God's work in history so that they can be united as they look forward to God's work through them uh, in order to reach others, right? Remember, Paul's writing this letter with a purpose. He's preparing the Romans to partner with him. He wants to come to Rome, and through Rome, he wants to reach Spain. And he wants the Roman church to become the, his sending church. He wants the, the church in Rome to partner with him and to work with him to reach unbelievers, people who had never heard about Jesus, in Spain, right? And, and, and so he's trying to unify them around their common mission, right? To, to springboard through Rome to Spain. And, and this presents some problems, right? Because the Jews see the world as Jews and Gentiles. There's us, the Jews, who are the chosen people of God, and then there's the Gentiles, which just means the nations are the other ethnic groups, right? And, and, and in their mind, they had come to often refer to them as the dogs, right? There's the chosen people of God, and then there, and there's the household pets. <laughs> We're the superior ones. Now, the Romans weren't any better, right? The Romans saw the world as divided between the Greeks and barbarians, right? There's uh, those of us who have Greek culture. We are the cultured ones. We are the, we are the intelligent ones. We are, we are the ones who, who know art and beauty and science. And then there's barbarians, right? Uh, a word that we still use today, it's funny, it actually comes from them mocking how people sound when they don't speak Greek. All they heard was bar, 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 right? And so they, they judged anybody who didn't speak Greek, who weren't rooted in Greek culture or history. So you had a group of people that were very, very prideful about certain things about themselves that then caused them to feel superior toward others who were unlike them. In order for that church to become a sending church for Paul, in order for that church to be united um, and, and actually sacrifice financially and personally so that Paul could reach Spanish people who were both Gentiles and barbarians, they were outside the group of everybody in the church in Rome, right? If they were going to get behind this, uh, they had to grow in the generosity of the gospel. They, They had to learn to be generous, and the way for them to learn to be generous was first to grow in the humility that comes from a deep experience of grace, So the Jews were tempted to think the Gentiles were less valuable because they weren't God's chosen people. The the Romans were tempted to think that the Jews and the people from Spain were less valuable because they had no culture. And to help them grow in humility, Paul has spent the last three chapters exploring God's sovereignty in past human history, showing them that, that no one has a right to feel entitled to God's blessing. No one by birth or by work has a right to feel superior toward others. God showed mercy to whom he would show mercy, and God hardened whom he would harden. And so why, he's being asked, if God is sovereign, did his own nation not embrace the Messiah? And Paul explains, God had a plan behind that. God had a purpose behind that. A temporary hardening came upon the nation of Israel 
in order that the door of the gospel might be opened wide to the Gentiles. The Jewish nation had become judgmental and arrogant toward the Gentile nations. And as a result, God hardened the nation of Israel in order to propel the gospel out to non-Jewish people. This was part of his plan. And and part of his plan as well, though, is that at the right time, Israel will see the blessing given to the Gentile nations and become jealous. It's going to provoke their hearts to receive the blessing that has so far passed them by because of their lack of faith. The central metaphor that Paul uses in this section to describe this process is the olive tree. The olive tree is um, very, very common in the Middle East. It's a common form of fruit, um, and uh, it was an important part of, um, of commerce and of daily life, really. And so Paul, to drive this point home, um, uses this idea of, of an olive tree and the process of grafting. Now, most of us aren't really into horticulture and, and may not get what Paul is, is really describing here. And those who are really, really into horticulture, it's funny, I found a whole group of people out there that are like really into criticizing Paul because he doesn't really get how grafting works and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, whatever. Um, Paul knew enough to be able to draw a good illustration, and I think that's enough for me. And so let me explain what the illustration is, right? In the old world, um, you would have olive trees that survived like forever, right? They got really, really old. And, and they would have very, very productive lives, and they had a very, very strong root. They were well grounded in arid soil, and they could find moisture in, in, in arid places. They didn't require a lot of maintenance because they were survivors. They had a strong root. But often, over time, their branches would become less fruitful. And as a result, um, they would actually cut off the older branches, like actually cut into the tree, right? Not just break it off, but cut into the tree in such a way that it left an open wound in the tree. And then they would cut off a branch from a younger, more fruitful tree and graft that branch into the tree. So they would take that, that branch from a newer tree that was more fruitful and actually tie it in and, and anchor it into the tree so that it would actually bond and become part of the tree, this process of grafting, where you could take a branch off of a newer tree that um, was more fruitful and tie it into a root that was stronger and was healthier. Metaphorically, Paul is saying that this represents what God has been doing in human history um, by shifting his focus from the Jewish people, his chosen ethnic group, and, and instead focusing on the Gentiles or, or uh, later shifting from the Gentiles back to the Jewish people. The root of the tree, Paul says, is holy. And we have been grafted, we, non-Jewish people, um, Gentiles by nature, have been grafted into that tree. So what does the root represent, right? It's a metaphor, and as a metaphor, there is a metaphorical meaning. And, and there's a little bit of debate as far as what the root signifies, because Paul doesn't come out and say it overtly. But I think it's pretty clear, um, considering how much time Paul has spent over the course of the letter developing a history of covenant history, that he's more than likely referring to that, that we as non-Jewish people, right? I am not, well, I may be, I don't know. My dad was Jewish, right? So, so I've got some Jewish heritage. I have no idea, right? It's so mixed up at this point. But most of us do not have any kind of physical lineage that takes us back to Abraham, right? We are Gentile people. And as a result, we are not in the line of God's covenant history, right? God's covenant history is rich and varied. When we read through Scripture, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing, right? The Scripture, the Bible, it's a book that was written over 2,000 years. Um, it's got 66 different books. It is written by 40 different people. It's in three different languages. It took over 2,000 years to write, and yet it tells a single story. Right? It's one of the most amazing books in Scripture. And the central through line, if you're looking for the, the, the central plot theme that runs through the entire book, it is this, that God has promised to redeem and restore His creation. And that promise comes through a series of covenants. It begins right there in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of the Bible with Adam. 
right? When Adam and Eve rebel against God and they reject uh, the gifts of God and they choose to be independent from God, they unleashed um, their sin into creation and they blew up the shalom, the peace of God. Right there in Genesis 3, God promises, right? He, he's in speaking specifically to Eve in response to the, the consequences of sin for her. He says, look, um, there's going to come from you a seed, a son. And that seed, that son is going to crush the head of the serpent. But his heel is going to be bruised in the process. Right there in Genesis 3, he is promising that he's going to send a hero. That hero is going to come through the very people who had created the problem. There would be a son who would be able to solve that problem, a hero that would be able to rescue them from the consequences of their sin. And he was going to come and he was going to destroy the power of the enemy, even though it was going to cost him dearly. He was going to shed blood to do so. He would be bit in the heel even as he crushed the head of his enemy. We call that the Adamic Covenant because it was given to Adam, right? There at the very, very beginning of the story. Then later, when, when God judges the world um, through a flood and, and he brings Noah through it, right? At the end of that, he brings Noah out and, and he says, look, I will never flood the world again. And I will set my bow in the heavens as a promise to you that, that I will never flood the world again. And, and there's so much symbolism through that, right? That, that God judged, but he created an ark that would carry them through the judgment, and on the other side, there was a blessing. And once they climbed out, the bow, which the, the Hebrew there literally is for a bow and arrow, no longer points at them, it points away from them, right? The threat toward them has been diverted because they were put in a place of safety. Someone else took the judgment on their behalf and carried them through it, right? The Noahic covenant, that, that God was going to not only not judge the world again through flood, but, but specifically, He was going to give us a passage through the judgment, through his chosen vehicle, of course, Jesus. And then you have the Abrahamic covenant later, the Abrahamic covenant that God comes to Abram and says to him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, right? You're going to have children as many as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. And, 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 and through your seed, singular, the entire world will be blessed. And then later he comes to, to Moses, a, a child of Abraham, and, and gives a covenant to him, which we call the Mosaic Law, the, the, the covenant of law. And then later, of course, we get the Davidic covenant, when God shows up to King David and says, you will have a son who will sit on the throne of David forever. One of your children, one of your sons will be the eternal sovereign, right? And so over time, this is what I want you to catch. Over time, there's a series of covenants. And in that series of covenants, God is continuing to promise his work of redemption and restoration. He will redeem what has been lost. He will fix what has been broken. He will raise what has been killed. He, he will restore, right? And he will do it through a price. God will redeem. He will restore. But as he's doing that, he's narrowing down who's going to do it, right? With Adam, it's a, it's a child of Eve, and, and then it's a child of Noah, and then it's, it's a, a descendant of Abraham, and, and then it's somebody who's going to fulfill the law of Moses, and then it is in the physical lineage of the King David. And of course, Jesus follows that line. So while it's narrowing down to the hero who's going to do it, he's broadening the promise of who's going to receive the blessing. Because with Jesus, we don't have the Jesaic covenant, right? It's funny how the covenants are named after all the dudes. No, with Jesus, it's just called the new covenant. Because he comes in and creates a new covenant that is the fulfillment of all the others. When you get the new covenant, you don't need any of the others because it is the one covenant every other covenant was pointing to. It replaced the Mosaic covenant. It fulfilled the covenants of promise. That covenant history was the Jewish history, right? The children of Abraham, when, when, when God through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob created a nation, he created the Jewish people, Right? That's the root of the tree. And those of us who were born outside of that lineage, were not part of that tree. The root was holy. Those covenants are holy and good. A revelation of God's good character and intent to bless, right? This covenant history was rich. When we believe the gospel now, as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, 
We're grafted into this rich history. These covenants are our covenants. This history is our history spiritually, right? Paul made this clear in Romans 4 that when you believe in Jesus, when you receive the gospel of grace, you become a, a descendant of Abraham, not a, not a uh, physical descendant of Abraham. You like that. Um, but a, uh, a spiritual descendant, right? Because you have the faith of Abraham, you are a child of Abraham. Sorry, y'all, I'm a mess today. I don't know what's going on. All right, so wild olives, that's what y'all are. <laughs> you are wild olives, man. You come from non-cultivated plants. You've got no history, and you've got, you got no right. But God in his mercy took you out of your wildness and grafted you into this rich history of blessing. It is yours in Christ. It is the blessing of grace, right? And so as a result, man, um, we have hope, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that there's no hope for the nation of Israel. It doesn't mean that God is done with the nation of Israel, right? Take a look at verse 25. And verse 25 says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now, remember in the Bible, when, when, when we talk about a mystery, we're not talking about something that's hard to figure out, and if you're really clever, you might get there. A mystery in the Bible is something that's impossible to figure out, unless God reveals it to you, right? And once God reveals it to you, it's not hard to figure out. You see it clearly, but you would have never seen it had God not revealed it. And so there's a divine mystery, a divine revelation here that Paul wants to share with us. And it's this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Clear, right? Easy. <laughs> this is some of the most theologically loaded language in the entire chapter, and there are books written on what this means. Um, and so I'm just going to come with a little bit of theological humility and let you all know that, that depending on how you approach this passage is often determines where you're going to end up with it. Um, what does he mean when he says the fullness of the Gentiles, right? Um, I'll just tell you my best guess. The word fullness here is, is used in reference to um, the same thing we would say when the fullness of a harvest comes in, right? It's not necessarily numerical, right? When you talk about the fullness of the harvest, you're not talking about all 700 million and 47 grains of wheat, right? You're talking about the full harvest, right? You're not talking necessarily numerically. You're talking about the process is done, right? There's going to come a point at which God's focus on, on spreading the gospel in Gentile nations to non-Jewish people, it's going to be done. There's going to be a fullness to the harvest, right? And when that happens, um, in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved, which of course raises the next question. What in the world does he mean by all Israel, right? Um, and there would be some who would argue that this refers to spiritual Israel. In the same way we're spiritual descendants of Abraham, we are spiritual Israel. And, and when the fullness of the harvest of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. The problem with that is that throughout the last three chapters, every time Paul talks about Israel, he is talking about the physical nation of Israel, the actual physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Uh, and so as a result, more than likely, he wouldn't change that terminology here. He probably is talking about the actual physical descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the nation of of Israel, which the best answer I think we can give is that, is that it seems to indicate that God has in his sovereign plan sometime in the future the intent of seeing a, a revival in the nation of Israel, that there will come a point at which there will be a receptivity in the nation of Israel to the Messiah, who specifically came from the nation of Israel to the nation of Israel, that we will see 
an influx of Jewish believers to the gospel. Now, how does that define all Israel? Does that mean every Israelite who has ever lived is, is no? <laughs> because Paul has already indicated that there are those who have been consigned to the severity of God because of their lack of faith. All right, there's no indication that he's, he's speaking of universalism. Um, it could mean that that generation, right? You're going to see uh, what would represent all of Israel um, come in that generation. That's my best guess, all right? We're dealing with a passage that um, is complex, and depending on which theological assumptions you bring to this passage, it's going to determine what theological conclusions you take away from it. And I, I, gotta, I gotta think that was a little bit intentional. Like in a passage that the central point is a call to humility, it's really ironic that so many people have grown so proud in their theological understanding of Romans 9 through 11, that people like just make these really dogmatic assertions and, and they, they look down on others who disagree with them and they become combative. And um, how ridiculous is it in a passage that is meant to call us to humility that we would end up with a certain level of spiritual arrogance. Um, so that's, you know, at the end of the day, I think we come around in verse 26 to, to just receiving the promise, right? In verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And there it's talking about Jesus coming from, from so Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And it's talking about the spiritual Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem, right? The mountain that, that is, is, is God's, not necessarily the physical mountain. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the father of Israel. He was renamed Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's, he, Paul is asserting that from the Old Testament, we see this incredible promise that God's intent was to remove the sin from his people right? And so as a result, in the current time, we see this tension where there is tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was during Paul's time where, where Israel was rising up against the spread of the gospel, yet it was still spreading among Gentiles, and it was incredibly complex. Um, this leads, at the end of the chapter, to this incredible song. And I just want to read 33 through 36 as, as we look at Paul's reaction to this complexity, right? Verse 33, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Why do we have this song of praise in the middle, at the end of this, at the end of this really, really complex section that is dealing with sovereignty and free will, right? Because I think when we are confronted with things we don't understand, we need to hold tightly to the things that we do, right? In this section, um, I think Paul has, has indicated that, that there are certain aspects here that, that we're not going to figure out or solve, right? There's a tension between God's sovereignty and our free will. God is absolutely, completely, and totally sovereign, and we have a free will, and we are completely responsible for how we use it. That is a tension that doesn't make any sense. That's a paradox that will give us a headache and leave us mystified, Right? Um, and I think Paul doesn't try to solve it. I don't think he has to have God figured out. I don't think he necessarily needs to have everything nailed down. When we, when we confront pieces of God's plan that don't make sense to us, we need to hold tightly to the aspects of God that he has made sense, right? Here, here's the thing. God's doing a thousand things. We might know one of them. God's will is, is, is so far beyond ours that he reveals to us what we need to know, not everything we want to know. And we couldn't understand it all, even if he revealed it. We may not have God figured out. We may not fully understand the intricacies of how God's plan is going to play out through end times. But we can trust God. Because we have a God who's revealed himself as trustworthy. 
that we can love God because God has revealed himself to us as a God of love. And we can respond to the mercy of God because he extends mercy to us to be received in the humility of faith. We can rest in the character of God and the power of God even if we don't understand the hand of God. I think at the end of this chapter, it's a little bit like, and this is just my likening, but there have been times that I've, I've been um, sitting over the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific specifically, because the Pacific Ocean is wild. It's powerful. It doesn't rest. The waves pound. It, it is deep blue. It is overwhelmingly beautiful. And it's like sitting on a high bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, right? And, and you're taking in all the delight and all the danger. You're looking at something that is deep and dark and uncontrollable and overwhelmingly beautiful. And as a result, what do you do? You sit in awe. It awakens within you the humility of gratitude. It is a response of, of, of joy at the revelation of beauty. I don't understand it. I can't control it. I can't plumb its depths. But instead of being crushed by the weight of the unknown, I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of what's been revealed. And I think that's kind of Paul's attitude at the end of Romans 11, man. He just bursts into song because what has been revealed reveals something of tremendous transcendent beauty. All right, that's an overview of, of Romans 11. That's an overview of what, what Paul is teaching, or at least the best I can do with it. Um, but here's the interesting thing. For all the things that are hard to understand in Romans 11, for all the things that are theologically loaded and complex, and, and we didn't even get into all the controversies that are in the fine print on this thing, um, there's, a, there's one point that is ridiculously clear. It's clear what Paul wants us to walk away from this chapter from. And, and, and it's the same point he's been making throughout Romans, right? It started in Romans 1 and it's been going on all the way to Romans 11. He's been making one point over and over and over again. He's taught a lot of different things, but there's been one through line, one theme that has started in Romans 1 and still carries on through Romans 11. And that is, he is highlighting the human tendency to create paradigms of us versus them. This, this inclination, this prideful inclination of the human heart to create groups of us and them where we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Where we're right and they're wrong. And we're justified because we're right and they're condemned because they're wrong right? This is a human tendency. This is, I would say, the default mode of the human heart, right? You know what happens when your computer goes crazy and you just have to hit control, alt, delete. That was old school. Now you just unplug it and replug it or whatever, right? You got it. You got it. The default mode of the human heart when everything gets, gets knocked out of whack is this. We will create structures, social structures. We will see the world in such a way that we're going to see good guys and bad guys, and we'll always be in the good guys. And we're always going to feel like the way to, to the path to life is by defeating the bad guys. Silencing them, correcting them, fixing them, eliminating them. This is the human tendency of pride. And all the way through the book of Romans, Paul has made the very clear point that this is antithetical to the gospel. The Jews saw the world as Jews and Gentiles. The, the Romans saw it as Greeks and barbarians. And as we wrap up Romans 11, I think we need to see that we do the same thing. We may not use the same classifications, but we do the same thing. We will continually be tempted to fall into the same traps that every previous generation has fallen into. And Romans 11 gives us a serious warning founded on the severity and the kindness of God. And it's a warning that's repeated multiple times throughout the chapter. Let me just make it clear. Verse 18, he says, do not be arrogant. 
In verse 20, he says, do not become proud, but fear. In verse 25, he says, I share these things with you, lest you become wise in your own sight. Pride has been the pernicious and persistent problem of God's people throughout covenant history, whether it was the Old Testament Jews or the New Testament church. We need to be careful with pride. We need to be afraid. So how do we know if pride's creeping in? How do we know if we're in this group that Paul is warning? How do we know if, if we're on that slippery slope that's going to leave us cliffed out spiritually? That spot where we can't feel like we can't go back and we can't really go forward and we're just stuck in the angst and the resentment and the anger and the fear that comes from, from pride. Well, we need to learn to recognize it. We need to see it in our hearts. Right? Romans 14, so Romans 1 through 11 has been this great theological exploration of the gospel and how it calls us out of these paradigms and into the beautiful humility of the gospel. Romans 12 through 16, where we're going to go next, is all practical application. It's all about, about taking these truths and applying them into the messiness of normal human situations. And in Romans 14, we're given, I think, a really helpful paradigm for recognizing pride. Pride will manifest itself in two activities, judging and despising. And we're all inclined to judging and despising. Judging and despising. In Romans 14, you have the weak brother who judges the strong brother, you have the strong brother who despises the weak brother, and you end up with a huge mess. <laughs> and Paul's solution in Romans 14, as we'll see when we get there, is to let God be judge and stop trying to sit in his chair and just love. Have your convictions, hold them firmly, but do not release the humility of grace or the love that comes from it. How do we know if pride is creeping in? We start feeling justified in judging others. Listen, you can't judge someone and love them at the same time. Those are two different impulses of the heart. See, when we judge someone, we feel justified in sitting over them, in, in evaluating them. I know what I need to know about you, and I feel justified in passing my verdict on your behavior and the motives that led to them. To judge someone is, is to sit in moral superiority over them. And you can see it because what it'll do, it manifests itself in, in, in universal ways, right? When we judge someone, we stop being curious about them. We have no need to learn more about them because we know everything about them we need to know. There's nothing more to be revealed because everything has been revealed and I have the ability to evaluate all that has been revealed. And as a result, I feel justified in passing a verdict of condemnation. And this can be over individuals or it can be over groups of people, right? I don't need to learn anything about Democrats. I know everything about them I need to know. I don't need to learn anything more about Republicans. I know everything I need to know about them. And I feel absolutely vindicated sitting over them in judgment, in condemning them. Kills curiosity. And it leads us at times to ask questions that aren't questions, right? We'll sit down with them, and the questions we ask aren't because we're looking for information, it's because we're trying to make a point. I ask a question not so that I can learn something, but so that you can. Because clearly I know something you don't know, I see something you don't see. And you end up creating narratives. And in those narratives, for them, you think you see them clearer than they see themselves. And as a result, you try to teach them about themselves and tell them about themselves. Instead of being curious to continue learning about them, you know everything you need to know. 
And therefore, I'm fully justified in my judgment over you. I'm fully justified in my condemnation of you. Now, to despise is the same exact process, but it's the flip side of the coin where instead of judging their behaviors, we despise their character. You you come to see a person or a group of people as just dumb, weak, cowardly. It can come out in, in, in harsh judgment where you say really harsh and rude and mean things and feel fully justified in doing it because obviously they're bad and they're wrong, but it can also come out in in more socially polite ways where it just comes out as pity or condescension, smugness, right? So as a result, judging and despising our twin sisters, they they tend to show up together. Um, We may be more inclined to one or the other, but Romans 14 tells us they are the same, they are children of the, of the same impulse, which is that prideful need to be superior, the prideful need to be right, the prideful need to be able to sit over another, a group of people or an individual, and judge them or despise them. The Jews judge the Gentiles for being immoral and ignorant of God's law. They despise them um, for, for their clear behavior that was outside of God's intended purpose. The, the Gentiles despised the Israelites because they were barbarians and uncultured and, and they were ignorant and stubbornly backwards when it came to culture and, and um, a lot of judging, a lot of despising. See, when they came into the church, they were called to repent of all that not bring that into the church with them. When they came into the body of believers, they weren't supposed to bring in all of the pride and the condescension and the judgment and the despising that was part of the broader culture. That was part of the repentant process of coming into a new people united around Christ and not around their cultural values. So what's Paul's point? Well, as he says, do not be proud, but be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of the severity of God, that he may break off the branch and graft another one in? No, that's not what he's saying. We should be afraid of our own hearts. We should be afraid of the subtle and deceptive inclination that we have to feel superior toward others, to sit in judgment over them, to allow our judgment of them to become condemnation of them that will kill our love for them, our curiosity about them, our desire to know them, and justify our separation from them. And instead rest Rest in grace, that grace can do what law can't, that God will accomplish through love what no amount of rules could ever accomplish, that God is judge. And at the end of the day, he gets to sit in the seat of the judge and no one else is safe in that seat. We can trust him to do his work. And to recognize that we don't have a right to despise anyone who is created in the image of God as those who are also created in the image of God. Right, verse 32, last word, and we're going to wrap up with this. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The one thing we all have in common is our need for grace. The one thing all of us have in common is that we needed to be saved. And at the end of the day, we only stand because God has mercy. No one in the kingdom is getting what they deserve because Jesus took it on their behalf. As a result, we should, like Paul, sitting on the bluff of the ocean overlooking the wildness of God's grace and mercy and severity, be overwhelmed with gratitude. And having been overwhelmed with gratitude, have no place left 
for self-justifying or others-condemning pride. To repent of pride and instead fear. Fear our heart's inclination to slide back in to that place in which we are, in fact, cutting ourselves off from the experience and the power of grace. Because as we become proud, we stop responding to the kindness of God. And as we stop responding to the kindness of God, we stop walking in faith. We should fear that we may end up at the end of the day even opposing God and his work while we think we're actually defending God and his work. Humble, grateful, joyful. That's where we need to stay. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And um, we're going to share communion together. And, uh, and then we're going to sing again. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Um, even as Paul says, I thank you for the awe and the wonder uh, of the severity and the mercy of your hand. That you are God who is judge and does judge, that you are a God who holds accountable, that you are a God who gives us freedom and then holds us accountable to the choices we make with that freedom. But at the same time, you are a God of mercy who is continually inviting us to the table of grace where we can receive what we haven't earned and we can be blessed with what we don't deserve. And at the end of the day, what sets your severity apart from your mercy is our willingness to humble ourselves to receive it. That if we will simply come in our need, if we will simply come aware that we have no right to claim anything from your hand, we will receive from your hand everything. That Christ, who died under the weight of our condemnation and sin, will then invite us into the glory and the freedom of his resurrection. Lord, we thank you that we can receive that by faith, and we thank you that we can continue walking in it by faith. And I pray that we would, as a people, be secure in that love and growing in that love, pushing ever more deeply into the humility that flows from this incredible message of grace and becoming fruitful in love and mercy being transformed in the process to be more like Jesus. We thank you that you love us and you invite us near. Help us to hear that invitation again this morning. We pray all of this in the mighty and beautiful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all of God's people said.